It's Muppeturgy, and we're here to love Leslie and Warren just the way they are. Uh, I mean, we're here to talk about the Leslie and Warren episode of The Muppet Show. Yay! Was that okay? Ah! Is that usable? Sure, why not? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> hey everyone, welcome back. We're so glad you're here. I'm David Levy. Here today with me are... Christy Bauer. Michal Richardson. And Adam Grossworth. Hey, we hope you're as glad to see us as we are to see us, among other people. So you've probably figured this out by now, but we thought we should say something. We started this podcast as a quarantine project, and now we are occasionally leaving our homes and doing things like going to work. I'm against it. Yeah, I know. Me too. So we have decided to start releasing episodes every two weeks. We had a few episodes recorded already when we made the decision. So we lied to you a few times and said things like next week when that wasn't true. And also there's like a shit ton of holidays in the middle of all of this. Yeah. That's going to make bi-weekly not actually be bi-weekly. Exactly. So uh, we made that decision and then like right away Thanksgiving happened. So we are recording this episode at the end of October. Uh, you are listening to it. If all goes according to our new plan at the beginning of December. So, you know, it's now okay for me to say Merry Christmas and Happy Hanukkah and whatever else you may or may not celebrate to you. Hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. But yeah, so we're still here, we're still doing this, and uh, the schedule will make this easier for us. And I know I have a ton of podcasts to listen to, and I'm always behind. So, you know, maybe it's actually helpful. But yeah, that's what's going on with our with our schedule. We will be here every two weeks unless there is a major U.S. holiday or Jewish holiday. That's our story. I have a feeling that we have perhaps misunderstood the question. Listener Giovanni Biene wrote to us about something else entirely, but mentioned very sweetly that way back in season one, we had mispronounced the name of English music hall star Marie Lloyd. Was that right? Marie Lloyd. Marie Lloyd. Marie. Marie. So we're still not entirely sure how to pronounce it, but it's probably (laughs) something closer to that. Anyway, she was a singer originally associated with The Boy I Love is Up in the Gallery, and we want to give her all her flowers and say her name right, uh, which we are currently still learning how to do. Uh, But thank you, because that is exactly the kind of correction that we love to get, no matter how much after the fact. And also, Giovanni, I apologize if I also mispronounced your own name. If somebody wants to send us an audio file... (laughs) With pronunciation corrections, we will happily play it in the future. Here is a Muppet News Flash. We're here this week to talk about Season 3, Episode 15 of The Muppet Show. It was produced November 14th, 1978, and it aired on May 7th, 1979. It was Episode number 21 in the air order between Sylvester Stallone and Roger Miller, neither of which we've talked about yet. There's this really weird thing, though. There was a 10-week break in new episodes before this one, and I tried to figure out why, and I couldn't. Uh, There was no similar break in the UK, so I don't think it was a production thing. Uh, In the UK, the season just ended 10 weeks earlier. Uh, I looked at the TV listings for a bunch of these weeks, and on most of them, The Muppet Show was on, but a rerun. Lots of other shows aired reruns too, but some didn't, and otherwise I just couldn't figure out anything out of the ordinary, except that on April 9th, the Oscars were on at 10 p.m. Eastern Time? What? Like, what? Did people stay up? people? I don't know. Sure. But, like, now they just start at, like, five on the West Coast. Yeah. Which is a really weird thing to adjust to if you've lived on the East Coast. (laughs) Right. And I guess guess that's weird for you, like, if you're at work, but... (laughs) 
did people stay up until two in the morning watching the uh, anyway so um, there was west coast privilege then and there's east coast privilege now yeah because also like you couldn't tape it you just have to stay up on a monday night i find that really weird anyway they were on abc cbs uh, in the muppet shows slot or channel two at least in new york ran a like a little oscars pre-oscar special best picture was the deer hunter that year uh, but that's all I got. So anyway, if you're a big fan of March and April of 1979, I am sorry. Uh, the big news story that happened during this gap was the Three Mile Island nuclear accident on March 28th. So that is uh, the Jonestown of spring of 1979. So back to May 7th, 1979, where we actually are. In today's New York Times, there is a full-page ad from the Edison Electric Institute Three Mile Island update, reassessing the risks. It basically says, we're working on it. Great, great. (laughs) Feel great about that. Uh, And there was a big anti-nuclear demonstration in D.C. on this day. Uh, Or I guess on the Sunday uh, before, so it was in the paper today. Uh, Also, Margaret Thatcher has an uphill task. Uh, Not as much as Liz Liz Truss and that head of lettuce, a joke which is sort of topical today and won't be when you hear this episode in December. (laughs) Is Liz Truss still the prime minister when you wrote that joke? Because she isn't now. No, no, I'm saying, but like, but she. (laughs) No, but I'm just curious if, like, I don't know when when this outline got written. Uh, No, between now and when this drops, more time will have elapsed than the amount of time as her tenure as prime minister. Yeah, that's actually true. Amazing. Wow. Uh, Several heads of lettuce. There are. We have three more prime ministers between now and then. (laughs) Who knows? Oh, we shouldn't laugh. Our politics are worse. Um, there are like three headlines about violence in the Middle East and an Israel-themed Bloomingdale's fashion ad, which I just found a strange juxtaposition. Not taking sides or anything. Just thought well, it was weird. feelings just hearing that sentence. Yep. The 70s. Um, cool. Pressing on. You know, like history, architecture, archaeology, like lots of things you can theme to a fashion ad. It just was weird together gas shortages gave drivers a sense of foreboding but not panic and there was a wonderful ad for the arthur murray dance studio uh advertising touch disco and i just love that arthur murray stayed relevant for as long as it did and also the specificity of touch disco is that like like doing the bump that's the only disco move i can think of where you touch somebody else i mean i, don't, I mean I don't there is the, the partner <laughs> dance <laughs> hustle you touch each other to to hustle on the Cashbox Pop Charts, uh, number one, Reunited by Peaches and Herb. And it feels so good. <laughs> number two, Heart of Glass by Blondie, which I think sort of speaks to the 1979, because that that like feels like an 80s song to me. Like early 80s, but... My, my, my favorite fun fact about Heart of Glass is that the dance break in the middle actually has a beat removed because they wanted to be punk and rebel against the fact that it was a disco song. And so they, they wanted to deliberately trip people up on the dance floor. That's hilarious. Oh, man. Can you do CPR to it? Definitely a 70s song, number five, In the Navy by the Village People, one of my favorite Muppet bits yet to come. Roxanne by the Police is number 42. And that actually really surprised me because I could have sworn that came much later. Like, that, that really feels like an 80s song to me. At number 54 and 55 are two songs called Crazy Love, which are entirely different songs. One is by Poco and one is by the Allman Brothers Band. And I just was like, oh, they must be like covers of each other that charted together. Nope, totally different songs, but both both quite bad. And 
also like way at the bottom of the chart, two different songs called Superman, one by the Kinks and one by Herbie Mann. Neither of them the theme from the movie. But like they're not adjacent. And I also get that Superman was in the zeitgeist because of the movie. So that feels less weird to me. Anyway, on television, on CBS, uh, The White Shadow is a rerun. MASH is a rerun. WKRP in Cincinnati and Lou Grant on ABC. Oh, this fills me with delight. Battle of the Network Stars 6. Uh, that is a Roman numeral, in case you were wondering. Featuring Scott Bayo, Billy Crystal, Richard Hatch, Tony Tennille, but not the captain. Jamie Farr, Valerie Bertinelli, Lou Ferrigno, Todd Bridges, and Jane Curtin among others, we really have to bring these back. Like, I just don't think Dancing with the Stars is humiliating enough. What did I say this about earlier? Oh, Circus of the Stars. Circus like, of the we, Stars. Yes, we need, we need these in our lives. What was the nature of their battle? Uh, battle of the Network Stars, like, in general, I mean, I didn't go look this one up, but I, they were generally, like, sporting events. And they were legit. Like, they made them, like, do stuff. <laughs> they made them, like, run relay races and, like, do, you know, like, like jump over hurdles and pole vault and shit like the, i mean I, I think they were boring by modern standards like pacing wise but i would like to see more celebrities humiliated <laughs> and these aren't like real housewives like billy crystal yeah and valerie bertinelli were like pretty big stars at the time right uh i mean valerie bertinelli yes billy crystal was on soap i don't know if he, he was still sort of on the ascendant I guess. Also, like, like Todd, I'm just, Todd Bridges, I was shocked to see his name. I was like, different strokes even exist yet, but it yeah, started no, it in did. 1978. It started in the late 70s, yeah. Uh, and like, I'm just imagining like a Lou Ferrigno, who, in case you listeners don't know, played the Incredible Hulk uh, without CGI. Like, it was two different actors playing Bruce Banner and the Incredible Hulk. Like, imagine like the Lou Ferrigno Todd Bridges matchup, and it's hilarious. Like, I, I should, I should see if this is on YouTube. I didn't. Um, anyway, I want, I want more humiliated celebrities on my television. Sure. But like on purpose, not for scandals. Um, speak, speaking of scandals, uh, following this was Playboy's 25th anniversary special featuring James Caan, Tony Curtis, George Plimpton, he, and of course Hugh Hefner, and playmate Candy Loving in a retrospective look at the Playboy years. That's all I got. On NBC, Roller Coaster, another theatrical release from 1977, with George Segal, Richard Widmark, Timothy Bottoms, Henry Fonda, Harry Guardino, Susan Strasberg, Helen Hunt, and Michael Bell. Helen Hunt must have been a small child. A young terrorist is able to blackmail a series of companies by placing homemade radio-controlled bombs within the central attraction of amusement parks. I... I'm very disappointed because we were supposed to record this episode a couple weeks ago when I was really busy and I, it, this movie is not streaming and I didn't have time anyway. And I have since found it on DVD at my library, but like not at my branch. So I have ordered it, but I only did this yesterday. And so I have not watched it, but I will watch it and report back later. I'm very Thank excited you. to watch this movie. <laughs> and then after that at 1030 is something called Who Done It? A panel of experts and contestants try to solve a crime after witnessing, which is in quotes, a tape of it. Well, I got no idea. Do we think that's a real crime or is this like a game show sort of thing where they like stage a crime to create this thing for them to watch to then solve? Who Done It was a UK game show that ran from 1972 to 1978. The American adaptation aired for one month, hosted by Ed McMahon and featuring F. Lee Bailey and Melvin Belly as panelists. NBC billed the series as the first mystery game show. It attracted dismal ratings. 
<laughs> Ranking 111th out of 114 shows. Wow. To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to you. Leslie Ann Warren, actress, singer, dancer. Born in New York to a singer and a real estate agent in 1946, Leslie began training for the spotlight early, attending the professional children's school at age six, which she followed with enrolling in the High School of Music and Art. As a teen, she studied at the American School of Ballet, and at 17, she entered the Actors Studio, allegedly the youngest person ever to be accepted into this prestigious training program. She made her Broadway debut that year with a featured role in 110 Degrees in the Shade, but she became a household name at age 19, starring in the first remake of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella on CBS, inheriting the role from former Muppet Show guest star Julie Andrews. At age 21, she was scooped up by Walt Disney, who put her in the last live-action musical he made in his lifetime, The Happiest Millionaire. She followed that up with another Disney live-action musical, The One and Only Genuine Family Band. At the same time she was making her Disney films, she married John Peters, who is sort of an infamous Hollywood personality. You might know him as the hairdresser who became a powerful producer, or as Barbara Streisand's ex, or as Pamela Anderson's ex, etc., etc. I'm not going to go down that road because this is not a John Peters podcast, but he's a fascinating, confounding personality. Leslie was his second of five wives and the longest serving with a marriage that lasted eight years. As the 1970s rolled around, Leslie turned her attention to television, primarily appearing in miniseries and TV movies. Most notably in my world, she was Lois Lane in the absolute disaster television adaptation of the musical It's a Bird, It's a Play to Superman that is on YouTube. If you hate yourself, you should definitely go watch it. Most notably to the rest of the world, she was featured on Mission Impossible for one season, which earned her a Golden Globe nomination. She would later win a Golden Globe for her role in the 1978 TV miniseries Harold Robbins 79 Park Avenue, where she played a very successful madam. Following her appearance on The Muppet Show, she would go on to earn an Oscar nomination for her role in Victor Victoria, opposite aforementioned Muppet Show guest star Julie Andrews. And in 1985, she was Miss Scarlet in Clue. She continued to perform on television, in film, and occasionally on stage ever since. You might remember her as Will's father's mistress on Will and Grace, or as Terry Hatcher's mom on Desperate Housewives. And, uh, you know, she had a very long resume. I'm not going to go through the rest of it, but that's basically all I have to say about Leslie Ann Warren. I'm wondering, does anyone else have thoughts, feelings, memories to share? All my memories are the entirety of Clue, which I've basically memorized. <laughs> But it's pretty astonishing to go back through her, especially her Disney and Rodgers and Hammerstein history, and learn that there is so much more to her than that, and that there are so many more innocent roles than the one she performs on Clue. Yeah, her career definitely seems like there was a pivot point where she went from like ingenue to woman with a past, or you know, New York's most successful madam, or mm-hmm. whatever. Yep. Yeah. Most recently, I, I've caught her in reruns of a show that was on like 10 years ago called In Plain Sight. She plays like the main character's mom and her her character's name is Jinx. Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's quite something. But yeah, Clue is sort of... Well, and, and the Cinderella. that her, her Cinderella was in rotation on the Disney Channel for a bit in the early nineties. It's funny. I, I mean, I watched and loved Will and Grace and Desperate Housewives and I like just forgot that that was her until you just mentioned it. But, but yes, she was great on those. 
Uh, I rewatched Clue a couple weeks ago in preparation uh, for recording this. Um, so I did watch Clue. I did not watch Roller Coaster. And she's great. I mean, that whole movie pretty much holds up and she's terrific in it. Yeah, I rewatched The Happiest Millionaire, which I cannot recommend. Like, it has a lot of lovely moments, including those with her, but it's just this like very long, very bloated, very ridiculous, meandering musical that's just it's three hours that feel like nine but that's your jam <laughs> i know i know uh, and i may still go and revisit the one and only genuine family band which i think is a better movie but i haven't Why don't you get so christy what'd you think of the episode it's fine <laughs> nah. uh i mean it's it's very middle of the road there wasn't anything in it that i hated uh but there wasn't anything in it that i really loved either i mean she's very charming she's very game but you know, overall, it just kind of washed over me. David? I think I liked it a little better than Christy did. There are a couple of, uh, if not exactly head scratchers, then at least sort of missed opportunities. But I actually think most of the stuff that doesn't involve the guest star is like pretty primo Muppet show. Like it's not, you know, not not a God tier episode, but I think it's a very good episode. Michal? Yeah, I give them props for some big swings in terms of some of the musical numbers in this episode. But beyond that, this was a middle, but a pretty low middle for me. Leslie Ann Warren is great. And there are a lot of head scratcher moments in this episode. Yeah, I think I'm 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 closest to David. Like, I, it's fine. Or it's better than fine. Like, I but it's, you know, it's no Harry Belafonte. Um I enjoyed it. I actually liked it better on my second watch. Um, it's really interesting to to hear so much about her musical theater background because her singing's not great. Um, but, you know, I appreciate that they're trying things and she does seem very game, you know. Yada, yada, yada. Uh, let's get into it. Leslie Ann Warren, 20 seconds to curtain, Miss Warren. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Scooter. Good luck to both of you. Good luck to both of us. Oh, oh just good luck. We got talent. We got drive. We got charisma. So no wishes, no lousies. Wish me luck. Yeah, that's a lunch encounter monster popping up in Leslie Ann Warren's dressing room and also repeatedly slapping her on the behind is that what's happening she looks at us in terror and then oh. she kind of changes her mind and then gives him an oh you like oh like she was pretending to dislike it or pretending to like it and i'm not sure which and i'm still uncomfortable either way yeah i mean he's, he's slapping her somewhere but he's slapping her hard enough that i'm like no nah, i don't care for it yeah <laughs> i just thought this is why you don't say good luck in the theater scooter should <laughs> wish them Although, had Scooter said break a leg, I, I shudder to think what Lunch Encounter might have done. And had Scooter said merde, I also shudder <laughs> to think what might have happened. Is the implication, given the running gag to come, that Lunch Encounter Monster's name here is, in fact, Warren? Oh, no. That explains too many things and not enough things. It's possible. It's possible. Because Scooter says only one of them. And Scooter knew that he was in there so right so leslie and warren why else would he be in there 
Because that's always the gag in the opening of the Muppet Show. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah. Elsewhere in the intro, Statler and Waldorf break into a little soft shoe. It's very cute. It's very cute. They strike a little pose. Uh, Gonzo blows his trumpet and it emits a mooing sound that surprises him. And then a cow appears and that surprises Gonzo even more. And he kind of sinks to the bottom of the, the hole in the O. Yeah, Muppet Show backstage. Okay, backstage and also on stage at the Muppet Show this week. Uh, Gonzo's act is really taking off, or at least it's attempting to. Ladies and gentlemen, this evening I will perform a feat of lunatic daring. <laughs> Before your very eyes, I will ride this motorcycle up this ramp and jump directly into that box, landing safely between those two elderly gentlemen. What? Oh, I can assure you, you'll be in no danger. You're right, we'll be in Chicago. <laughs> right, so Gonzo attempts a feat of lunatic daring. This backfires. Uh, he attempts to drive his motorcycle up a ramp and off of the stage, but the motorcycle just backs down the ramp again and off the stage in the wrong direction. And Statler and Waldorf are thrilled. Hooray! <laughs> so now we know that the Muppet Theater is not in Chicago. Just adding to our list of places the Muppet Theater isn't. Maybe when they say we'll be in Chicago, they mean they walk out the door of the theater. Maybe. I think that's a stretch. Or they'll go to the theater across the street that is showing Chicago. Slightly less of a stretch. Slightly less of a stretch. <laughs> We're trying. I find Kermit's introduction to this segment super weird. He has never been this enthusiastic about Gonzo ever. What's going on? Is he on Coke? Yeah, he's usually only that enthusiastic about the guest star. And here he is very excited to introduce Gonzo. I mean, it could be that he is assuming that this stunt will finally be what kills Gonzo. And that's why he's so excited. Oh, right? He'll finally be rid of him. Gonzo and Statler and Waldorf all in one... Wow. Uh, it's a Fell lot of birds smooth. with one motorcycle. I also had a little bit of deja vu here because we've seen Gonzo on a motorcycle before, but also this to me is sort of the canonical Gonzo motorcycle sketch. So I was like, oh, have we seen this particular sketch before? But I don't think so. Yeah, I also tried to remember because this felt so familiar, but it felt familiar to me from episodes I've seen more times than this one. So I've just confused myself. I associate a Muppet doing a motorcycle jump so strongly with Miss Piggy in the Great Muppet Caper. And I realized this came first, but I, it also felt weird to me to to have it not be that. We do get something similar for Gonzo here because he's practicing backstage. Uh, he manages to drive out of the theater, but he also does manage to do a, a Miss Piggy-esque stunt where he just lands on Kermit and Fozzie from above somehow. Just like from the wall of backstage. I don't know how it works. That's true. He just defies the laws of physics or drove all the way up the wall and jumped off somehow. Anyway, he does at last, at the very end of the episode, succeed at his stunt at the expense of the wall of the box that Statler and Waldorf are sitting in. And so here he is now, ladies and gentlemen. I'm ready, Kermit! Yeah, I'm introducing you. Introduce fast, I'm really ready! Okay, ladies and gentlemen, the great Gonzo! <laughs> Oh. There, that 
was easy, wasn't it? <laughs> I think Gonzo's on coke. <laughs> that would explain some things. Anyway, we also have a running gag. Uh, Leslie Ann Warren is repeatedly confused for any number of acts who are not, in fact, Leslie Ann Warren. Uh, let's just hear all of them. Anyhow, tonight we've got a real treat for you because our very special guest stars are that world-famous knife-throwing act, Leslie and Warren. Uh, uh, but, but first, Kermit, uh, what is it, Scooter? Well, only one of them showed up. What? How can you have a knife-throwing act with only one person? Where's the other one? Well, I don't know. Maybe he had an accident on the last gig. Uh, well, as I was saying, we have a really terrific show tonight with our very special guest star, Leslie and or Warren. Here we are, ready to go on. What are you two doing out here? We're the very special guest stars. Right, Leslie and Warren, the dancing cucumbers. <laughs> See, he's Leslie, and I'm Warren. Yeah, yeah, but our special guest star is a big TV star that sings and dances and acts and does comedy. Yeah, but can she make salad? I'm sorry about that, Leslie. I mean, who knew there was an act called Leslie and Warren? Are you kidding? Sure, everybody knows us, Leslie and Warren. Yep, that's us. <laughs> oh, I get it. Uh, let me see. You're Les, you're Lee, and you're Warren. <laughs> see? Yeah, uh, by the way, who's the lady? Oh, I love a good running gag. <laughs> Thank you. Anyway, our guest star is neither Les nor Lee nor Warren. Uh, let's talk about our actual guest star and her singing and dancing. Or some Muppets singing and dancing. I think we're going to talk about Leslie Ann Warren singing and dancing later. I don't know. The cucumbers are pretty cute. We'll the talk cucumbers about them for a while. are freaking adorable. I would watch a spinoff about the dancing cucumbers. I find oh. them upsetting because they <laughs> define their primary talent as making salad. Does that mean they're cannibals? Does that mean they're about to sacrifice themselves? No. Why are cucumbers the ones who are making salads? I'm surprised that I find them as cute as I do. I'm just totally ignoring David's comments. <laughs> it's the 70s. Maybe maybe it's like a jello mold situation. Maybe oh. there are like bits of human and in just there, mayonnaise. Nope. You know, tossed with mayonnaise. Like we don't know what kind of salad they're making. Nope. A tuna salad. It's a whole to serve man situation. <laughs> uh, Leslie and Warren are these really weird looking whatnots who I've been noticing a lot. They might actually be the backup singers from short people with new wigs. I don't know. Like they're, they're, they're very distinct. They're very distinctive faces and they have been popping up a lot lately. And now I'm going to start tracking it. I bet Muppet Wiki already has that tracking done for you. It might, but I mean, they're not the same characters. They keep getting new wigs. If they don't have pages that track the evolution of an individual or whatnot, they definitely should. That could be a new project for you. Oh, um, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna keep it on. Lee and Warren have their own wiki page, but just about their appearance in this episode. Right. As do Leslie important. and Warren, the Dancing Cucumbers. So, as was alluded to, uh, we don't start musically with our guest star. Uh, we start in the UK spot with uh, Dr. Teeth. We 
we might want to clarify that the first sketch in the show is a sketch that is entirely set to music that does star the guest star. But yeah. we're not going to talk about it. Yeah. No. no <laughs> but the music's just... shitty. It doesn't matter. So. Yeah. <laughs> we we will get on there, that. but like, we, but you know. Yes. We will talk about it later. Yeah. But now let's mm-hmm. talk about this. Oh, the shark has pretty teeth, dear, and he shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has Mac Heath, dear, and he keeps it out of sight. Stop, 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 stop. This is an appalling song of gore and violence. <laughs> Maybe you just don't understand it, Sam. It contains a lot of slang. <laughs> a shark has pearly teeth, dear, is slang. Uh, sure, a uh, shark is a term for man. Everybody knows that teeth is slang for money. <laughs> it's very weird for Sam to sort of be right. <laughs> <laughs> He's usually way off base, but no, no, he he's right. This this is a, a song about a, a violent individual. Um, this is Mac the Knife, which is a song from the Three Penny Opera from 1928, music by Kurt Vile, lyrics by Bertolt Brecht. And this particular translation was done in 1954 by Mark Blitstein. And yeah, it, it is the, the opening number of a, a show about a character named Mac Heath, who is a highwayman. He's a criminal. He's a robber. He's, you know, a killer. He's a murderer. Yeah, he's, uh, he's a bad dude. But the thing that's great about the song is it's just like, check out this bad dude. <laughs> and uh, have we talked about the Three Penny Opera before? I feel like we have, though I don't know why. The Three Penny Opera was was based on an operetta from the 1700s called the, the Beggar's Opera, which was sort of like a proto-jukebox musical. It used a lot of like popular songs of the day, but it told the story of... This, you know, bad dude and his exploits. We have talked about the Beggar's Opera before. Oh, well, maybe that's it. Yeah. Uh, Because if you remember the J.P. Morgan episode, the song English Country Garden, that has its roots in a melody. That appears in the Beggar's Opera. Yeah. That appears in a parody of the Beggar's Opera called the Quaker's Opera. Oh, right. Right. Thank God for record keeping, folks. This is a man. We're all learning so much and so little at the same time. <laughs> Only to forget <laughs> it again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Back the Knife is a standard uh, because it was recorded after that 1954 uh, English translation, which was done for a Broadway production of the show uh, by a couple of people who had big hits with it, uh, Louis Armstrong and then Bobby Darren. And, the, and Bobby Darren's version is usually like when people are like, oh, Mac the Knife, the, referred to as the definitive one, noted Joe Raposo, Stanford Sinatra even talked about like, oh yeah, man, Bobby Darren's version is it. And it, it was a huge hit uh, in 1959 um it was number one on both the hot 100 and cash box it was number one on cash box for eight weeks and we know how hard it is to crack cash box and it was also number 251 on the original terrible 2004 rolling stone 500 greatest songs of all time list 
but curiously, not on the 2021 list at all. And this is a super fun arrangement of it. It's so good. Yeah, I'm sad we don't hear more of it. Yeah. Like, I, I wish we just got a full-on Electric Mayhem performance of this song. Yeah, I can usually take or leave the song, and I love this. Like, I would have so happily listened to the rest of this. I don't fully grasp it, but I'm sure it's a lovely sentiment. Another piece of music that we get in this episode is a piece that we've heard before, which is the Blue Danube Waltz by Johann Strauss. Uh, it is rendered by uh, Marvin Suggs and his Muppophones, uh, and it appeared in the Mum and Chance episode in season one. Uh, if you'll recall the library scene with noises that Adam and I particularly hated <laughs> Zelda Rose as the librarian, really, really terrible for anyone with misophonia. Um, but yeah, uh, th- this is uh, delightful for one reason and one reason only, which is that Leslie Ann Warren calls out Marvin Suggs for his cruelty. And I am here for it. You're not wrong. No, I am the beloved Marvin Suggs. <laughs> and these are my muppophones, and we will accompany you. Please, Mr. Suggs, what are you doing? Making the beautiful music. <laughs> These little creatures are alive, and you're hitting them. Of course they are alive. You cannot make music by hitting dead creatures. <laughs> I do really love Marvin Suggs in this scene, even though I'm also glad that he gets called out for his cruelty. Also, there's plenty of music that can be made by hitting dead creatures. <laughs> also true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Marvin Suggs has never encountered drums or pianos. I, I mean. Well, I think maybe there's a certain amount of craftsmanship that has to happen between the creatures dying and being able to make music from them that he is unwilling or unable to do. Wait, what, what dead creatures in my piano? Cat gut? Elephant? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Trees? Never mind. I don't know. <laughs> All right, I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. So in, in that Marvin Suggs clip, you'll have heard that Leslie Ann Warren was calling for Rolf, who was not there. Uh, and he does finally show up to accompany her in a lovely, but uh, deceptively uh, lovely song. <laughs> I need to know that Ah, yes. An ode to conditional love. Uh, This is Billy Joel's Just the Way You Are, uh, which was a huge hit around the time of of this episode. Well, fairly recently. It was from 1977 um, from an album called The Stranger. It hit number three on the Hot 100 and number two on Cashbox. And it was number one for the entire month of January of 1978 on the Easy Listening chart, Billboard's Easy Listening chart. 
and the winner of uh, two 1979 Grammys, Record of the Year and Song of the Year. And this song, uh, Billy Joel wrote for his first wife, who was his business manager at the time. Her name was Elizabeth Weber, and he didn't like it that much. Uh, <laughs> according to legend, uh, they didn't do they, anybody else. Yeah, they, they laid it down in the studio. <laughs> and at the time, Linda Ronstadt and the singer Phoebe Snow were both in other studios in the same building. And they heard it and they were like, oh, my gosh, the, you have to put this on your album. And Billy Joel was like, oh, OK. And after his unsurprising divorce uh, from the person who inspired this song, uh, <laughs> he, he rarely played it live for many, many years. He, he'll, he'll do it now occasionally. But yeah, the song is really upsetting to me. <laughs> I, I, I don't really Wait. understand. I thought the point of the song is the opposite of conditional love. Yeah, like, I you, had the same you need question. to change. I love you how you are, like no matter what. Yeah. Have but, I never examined it that closely and am I missing something? Oh, the whole thing is like, I will love you. If you don't change, uh, I never read it that way. Oh, yeah, I, I always understood either. it as yeah. I you don't have to I, change. I need to know that you will always be the same old someone that I knew. Uh, what? Fair enough. What will it take fair. till you believe in me the way that I believe in you? I'm sorry. That is. <laughs> oh yeah, that's that very is la- red. Very last five years, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> red flag material. <laughs> And I say this as a person that, like, as a child, I thought the song was beautiful and for many, many yeah. years. And then just one day I actually thought about it and was like, oh, dear God, I would have divorced him, too. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't love you any better. I love you just the way you are. Yeah. Give, give me my cookies. Oh, I don't want clever conversation. I never want to work that hard. <laughs> it's, it's, see? See? It's terrible. So here's what I suggest. <laughs> I just I just want someone who's a little bit stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and that's you, sweetheart. Oh man. Yeah, no fair. I see it now. I see it uh, now. G, here to ruin Billy Joel. <laughs> you're I mean, Billy Joel doesn't need our help. I like Billy oh. Joel, but yeah, well, no, you're I from it. New York. I, I, I like okay. Billy Joel. I mean, I, okay, I'm Boston. <laughs> I'm contractually obligated to like Billy Joel, but also I've never had that much patience for this song. Because even when Oscar sings it, so that's the thing. What I suggest, if this version is getting you down, is to go look up Billy Joel singing it to Oscar on Sesame Street with the help of Marley Matlin signing. That version is an absolute delight. It's very sweet. Yeah, and notably, it has different lyrics. Yeah. Yes. I, so, lyrics aside, I I chose that particular part of the song to clip because, especially after talking about how much we love. Mac the knife. Did Ross Geller play this? Like, what is happening with that keyboard? It's <laughs> awful. <laughs> it's very much like high school music teacher accompanying callbacks for the musical in terms of the arrangement. I don't know what's going on. It's just like, wow. like I think I had that Casio when I was five, and I couldn't play. Like, I just, I would just like press buttons on it to make sounds. I, it's bad. It's bad. Statlin Waldorf didn't mind. Yeah, they disagree with us completely. You know, I really like that. Yeah, me too. Are we in the right theater? They would. Now I'm just imagining them seeing the last five years. Or being in it. Oh no, which of them is which? The latter I would pay real American dollars to see. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, hi there, good looking. Who is that? Well, that was my snappy opening line. Sort of an icebreaker. Well, I'd, um, I'd hate to break perfectly good ice. 
Wait a minute. Aren't you Link Hogthrob? I'm one of the stars of the show here. Uh, perhaps you've admired me from afar. I don't even know what to say about that. <laughs> I mean, I love it. And I don't know why the Muppets have suddenly discovered disco in 1978 when this was filmed. But but boy, have they. Better late than never. Better late than never. And it is delightful. <laughs> this also goes on for a while, this scene, before we get to the song. Let's hear a little bit of the song then. So let's dance, let's dance, let's dance, let's dance, let's dance tonight. Let's dance, let's dance for love. Oh yes, it's my last chance, romance. Tonight. Oh, somebody help her. Oof. This is a uh, last dance. If you hadn't guessed, <laughs> <laughs> which is a, a Donna Summer song that was on the soundtrack of a movie from 1978 called Thank God It's Friday. It was written by Paul Jabara. If that name sounds familiar to our Muppeturgy superfans, it's because Paul Jabara. Do we have superfans? I feel like we have. Yeah, I think we do. Yeah. Well, you know, a handful. Paul Jabara also wrote Dance, which was the song of the Twiggy episode with the gay pride Langolier. And this was number three on the Hot 100 uh, and hit number two on Cashbox. And I, I learned it, it's frequently used by radio stations as their last song before they change formats. Huh. Uh, yeah, that's delightful to me just because I'm obsessed with radio stations in format limbo. Speaking of our super fans, if you're playing the Muppeturgy drinking game, get ready, uh, because Last Dance was the winner of the 1978 Best Song Oscar. Hey, center square, bingo. And one of the songs that it beat, uh, was hopelessly devoted to you. So, Greece, not the the word. word. Not always the word. Hopelessly devoted to you was never the word. And just a pedantic note here, if you've been actually paying attention to this whole episode, and why would you? Uh, 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 1978 is the movie year and is the correct way to refer to the award, as Christy just did. But this is the same Oscar ceremony that I discussed earlier in this episode, 10 hours ago, uh, that aired just a few weeks before this Muppet episode in 1979. So this is extremely current, though I guess they would have they would have taped this they did tape this episode before the Oscars aired, so they did not know that it was going to win an Oscar just weeks before. Michal, I'm concerned that someone has rigged your bingo game if your center square is not the free square. <laughs> <laughs> couple more quick fun facts about Last Dance. It won Grammys for Best R&B Song and Best Female R&B Vocal Performance. And it was arranged by a guy named Bob Esty, who was apparently to this song what George Harrison was to Octopus's Garden, <laughs> in that he, like took like Paul Jabara's rough draft and was like, why don't we like finesse the chords here? And why don't we do a little bit of this? And uh, he he was really bitter that he didn't get co-writing credit because if he'd gotten co-writing credit, he would have won an Oscar, which Hmm. I understand. Yeah, it makes sense. So, yeah. I have a lot of thoughts about this number. Most of them positive. The whole setup here. So they really did just discover disco. And like, unlike 
staying alive. This one is deeply literal. They're they're in a club. We open on a bunch of Muppets in a bar. <laughs> and Link hits on Leslie. Ann. No, Leslie Ann Warren approaches Link first. We just heard a clip. You'd think I would know this. But then like Link tries to flirt with her, and he's really bad at it. And then she is into it, and he doesn't know what to do with himself. And I don't know why it makes me uncomfortable when Raquel Welch hits on Fozzie. But this I find very funny. <laughs> I don't oh, know why this works very for me. very uncomfortable. I it's think it's all because- about Link's chest hair. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that going on. I think because it's Link and Link is like aggressive and kind of gross, but then like can't handle when when it's turned around on him. Like it works for me in a way that the Fozzie Raquel thing, just like the power imbalance was different and and I don't know. I thought it worked. I appreciate that it might be satisfying that like he can dish it out, but he can't take it as far as being a smarmy so and so, but like Leslie Ann Warren forcing him to dance with her and uh, I, grinding on him basically when he is clearly uncomfortable. I I did not care for this. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you're a hundred percent right. Like, and I and I should have the same problems that I had with <laughs> uh, with Raquel Welch and Fozzie. But I don't. Yeah, I got. I have, I have no defense. <laughs> I mean. For me, I think it's just that there is a very aggressively gendered quality to Link that Fozzie doesn't normally have. Yeah, and also like the scene, because it's a scene, because it's not backstage. Yeah. It's in the disco, and so it's sort of sending up this particular type of guy in this particular time and place. Yeah. It works for me. But yeah, but you're, I mean, you're still like, right, you're still right, Michal. Um, she does really commit to it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, her singing is not great. Her dancing is fine, but they have put her in a dress that is very reminiscent of the Cassie dress from a chorus line, which does her no favors. Ma'am, I, I, I knew Cassie. I served with Cassie. <laughs> <laughs> you, you are know the music in the mirror. I just, she looks great. It just is like, it's just, it's fine. And it just is not a great comparison for me to be making in my head. I, yeah, she looks great. She's, she's very limber. She is. She is. She has great legs. Like there's nothing, there's nothing wrong here. I just, it's really the dress like drew my attention to it. And there's something actually, right. The dance record music in the mirror is also very disco. So I like not the, the choreography, but the, the musically. And so I was just like, mm, wish I hadn't made that connection in my brain because now it's all i can think about and i wish i were watching a better dancer nah. <laughs> do this the scene ends with a whole group of muppets coming together and dancing around leslie and warren and link and i was deeply offended that that group did not include scooter or droop it's a disco where are gay muppets or statler and waldorf i guess they're too old they wouldn't be at a disco yes where are the gay or bisexual muppets Yes. Yes, Never mind that jazz! Listen, turkey! What? And get out of show business? This week on Pigs in Space, our heroes travel through a field of demo rays, and apparently only people of very low intelligence are affected, uh, which is why when they come out of the field of demo rays, Link appears to be dead? Question mark? I told you, you really have to be stupid to be affected by demo rays. (laughs) <laughs> oh no Sorry <laughs> Does that 
but the effect is only temporary, so don't panic. Panic? Are you kidding? This is the chance of a lifetime. I am taking over. So for better or for worse, Link comes out of this stupor shortly after, and he is a new pig. I must warn you, Captain, Dumbo Rays have one side effect. The victim becomes a tap dancer. A what? I don't believe this. Where did you get those shoes? Hi ho, tea for two. Yeah, is this our first tea for two? <laughs> we know it's not for real though. Like, what is this? Number four? Number five? At least four. It's about in four, a row. Yeah. So I noticed. Perhaps you noticed as well that this is the second instance of tap dancing in this episode. Although neither of which happens during a musical number. What's that about? I mean, it's adorable. What else do you want? Yeah, it just is weird to do it twice in the same episode. Like my my working theory is that maybe Leslie wanted to tap dance and there wasn't a way to also have that on top of all the other things. So maybe she is the uh like ghost dancer for both Link and Statler and Waldorf. It could be. Hmm. Like maybe we're hearing her taps. Why not? Or maybe someone else wanted to show off their tap dancing when she was here and this was the compromise. <laughs> Any of the above. I, I don't have anything to add about this pigs in space. I really like the line about those shoes because that's a really solid question. Almost any time anyone tap dances in a musical. Yeah, I didn't even notice until I'd watched it a couple of times already. <laughs> Piggy says, where did he get those shoes? Which is, yeah, that's a good question. She's so mad about it, too. It's <laughs> great. <laughs> it's also nice to take a moment to reflect that, you know, when Pigs in Space started, we were really disappointed because it seemed like Piggy was always the butt of the joke. And now Piggy is acknowledged as the smart one, the leader, mm-hmm. and Link gets put in his place. That's growth. Yeah. It's coming along really nicely, actually. Yeah. It's, 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 it. it's turning into the Pigs in Space I remember fondly. I was, those first ones were disappointing. Yeah, it does make it even weirder, though, that Link is later punished by being forced to dance up close and personal with Leslie and Warren against his will. But within the context of this sketch, that's neither here nor there. And now for something completely different. An interpretation of Beauty and the Beast by Miss Leslie and Warren. This is uh, a ballet of sorts that Leslie and Warren dances with Dog Lion. Um, They dance together. They fall in love or they appear to fall in love. But then she leaves. And then without her, he collapses and she returns and kisses him. And then we go full Shrek. Leslie and Warren transforms. She turns towards the camera and reveals that she now has a miniature Dog Lion head. And then they do this cute, jazzy ending this is the big swing I was referring to in my review of this episode. This is a big swing and it's fine. Yeah. It could have been much worse than it is. Like it's not embarrassing. It's just 
odd. Yeah, it's not a swing and a miss. It's just a big swing. I have a lot of thoughts about this. First of all, I should mention the music here is a a Larry Grossman original for this particular purpose. And well, first of all, this is the first time, and I think it has something to do with the set, which is beautiful. It's like a really pretty, like hand-drawn blue, gray, purple situation. But yeah, I love the set. I never until this sketch bit ballet thing noticed how Maurice Sendak dog lion is. Oh yeah, very much so. Huh. Yeah. Like I just found myself thinking back to the the live action where the wild things are moving. The set for this is very Dr. Seuss too. Yeah. It it's got that quality too for sure. Yeah, it's very dreamy and swirly and in these jewel tones. It's I I really enjoy the set and she's a lovely dancer and this accomplishes what it sets out to do. And I, I, as a dancer, I feel I should be able to offer you some more analysis on what this is and whether it's good. And those are my only thoughts. I like this set and Leslie Ann Warren is very flexible. (laughs) That's all I've got. So I know we just sort of skip past the music because it's a Larry Grossman original, but it was notable to me that it is very similar in tone and almost but not quite in melody to some of the music that Alan Menken will write for his version of Beauty and the Beast 20 years after this. Uh, And I don't know what to make of that. I don't think Alan Menken was like stealing from the Muppet show. And I was trying to remember is the, is the score from the, the French film from the forties from the Jean Cocteau Beauty and the Beast also of a similar piece like or is that is there like a mutual antecedent that both larry grossman and alan menken are referring to unfortunately i had a very busy week i was not able to to give that a listen that is a good question that i do not have an answer for but uh we should investigate and report back because i th- i think you're on to something that, that's gotta be it right like it's yeah because it, it's like it's too close for that to be coincidental unless it's just that like Element can love the Muppet show. And this was sort of lingering in the back of his mind subconsciously. I mean, anything's possible. Also, this has nothing to do with the music, but uh, that very sort of deadpan Jerry Nelson intro (laughs) reminds me of like, especially on on, like the, the cast albums, the intros in the musical Chicago like oh yeah uh, for her first number miss roxy hart would like to sing a song of love and devotion dedicated to her dear husband amos (laughs) dedicated to her dear husband dog lion (laughs) i I always think of that one because former muppeturgy (laughs) guest and friend of the pod amy spaulding like 20 years ago ran a misheard musical theater lyrics website and somebody Ooh. had submitted to that that they, they thought that they said, uh, Miss Roxy Hart would like to sing a song of love and devotion dedicated to her dear husband's anus. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's weird. This is the second time they've done one of these like totally unnecessary deadpan introductions for a sketch that just does not need it. And uh, what are they thinking? What is going on? Why is that happening? And we asked the same things last time. It just, I mean, I think you wouldn't know it was beauty and the beast, but then, but Kermit could have done it. Right. Right. Like, yeah, it's weird. Yeah. It just sets the tone in a really, really strange fashion. 
Yeah. It it does feel like they're trying to establish that this is a somber subject and should be treated with the appropriate gravity. I I guess I like when they take big swings like this. I wish it were like puppetry, right? Like, I mean, the dog lion costume is really cool, but like it's a dancer in a costume and without the same payoff as like the, the pig costume from the Nareev episode. But my biggest problem with it is actually the ending. Like I think, right. She, she gets up with the, with the dog lion head and then they do this little like vaudeville jazzy. Shtick. Yeah. Like, like na, 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 na. exactly that. Like, and yeah. And like, it undercuts the entire thing. Like, like I, I wish they had sort of had the courage of their convictions to be like, and right. And the happy ending is like, he is not transformed into a handsome prince, but she's transformed into a monster and they live happily ever after. Like just play that and play it straight. It can still I, be the Muppet show. I mean, I don't think that it undermines anything for them to switch yeah, it up and do I a just, joke is the ending. Well, but like, but that is the joke, right? Like the, her turning into that is the joke. And, and to then, I don't know. I, the, the stickiness just felt weird to me after they did this sort of whole thing that was something else. I don't know. It didn't bother me. It was kind of fun to see them both dance like that. <laughs> like after all that, it was nice to do a different style of dance, but dramaturgically speaking, I didn't like it. <laughs> I'd wish that they had figured out a way to get the mask onto her without an edit. Cause like, it's a very obvious edit if you're looking for it. And it would have been very cool. And I think if they were doing this today, they would have had it in such a way where the mask was like somehow hidden on the under stage. her face, <laughs> or like like uh, like in, in the dog lion costume, so that it could just sort of like get onto her face while she's weeping over him. Yeah, but you know, this is me wanting this to be theater and not television. And like, there's nothing wrong with television <laughs> being television, right? It is also cute that they then do the same thing with Statler and Waldorf. It's also a very cute mask. Yes. Like, I I sort of want Baby Dog Lion to be a recurring character. Or Lady Dog Lion? I don't know. Baby Lady Dog Lion. I mean, is it the same thing that Statler then wears, or is that that a different I think so, yeah. Because it looks looks big on him. Can we strike this whole thing? Strike the set? Strike the muppophones? I would love to! Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Join us next week for a discussion of the Danny Kay episode of The Muppet Show with our own very special guest star, Noah Diamond. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. Yay! There is something, I think, inherently... Brechtian about (laughs) Dr. Teeth.